0: If you have not been here the last few weeks, we are currently in a study in the Book of James, and we have subtitled uh, this series "Faith is a Verb." I changed my image on my title slide here because my graphic arts department told me it was too much like the last picture of the last series, and I needed to update it. So, thank you to my great, my great graphic arts department, as the, the same guys that were previously mentioned. Um, They, all they do is give me a hard time. That's, I don't know why I even like them. No, I love them very much. Hey, so, uh, again, James is just, I don't know about you, it's a fun book to read. It's fun. Uh, I like it. He just goes after it. You know what I mean? James is not pulling any punches. He is not beating around the bush. He lets you know exactly how he feels. And for the better part of the uh, first chapter and a half, he has been telling us, uh, kind of his case over and over again. He told us first, don't just listen to the word. Uh, that You'll deceive yourselves, but you've got to do what it says. He followed that up by telling us that God accepts religion that has what John Wimber would call shoe leather. When you care for orphans and widows, uh, others around you, he also told us that if we keep the law found in Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing the right thing. You, gotta, you can't just verbalize that law. You can't just believe that. You have to do it. And then one of the, uh, the last verse we looked at last Sunday was mercy triumphs over judgment. Which, by the way... The guys did do a great job last week. If you missed that, you might want to get the podcast uh, Brogan and Tucker shared. And I have what happens to be a quotable quote from last week. Quotable Marcotte. Did you know it? That's absolutely. Mercy is the harder choice. Brogan Marcotte. Great quote, dude. Good job. It's true. Mercy is the harder choice. Uh, his... Brogan's illustration was the Good Samaritan who, uh, unlike the two people prior to him, uh, who turned their heads and walked away from someone in need, uh, he stopped and helped. And it cost him. It cost It was a harder choice. It was time, it was energy, and it, and it was money. And, that, and mercy is always the harder choice. So we're going to continue today. Uh, if you ha- if, I-, I would love if you would follow along with us. My encouragement is always to read the entire book in context. In one sitting, so if you have opportunity this week, if you haven 't already, uh, sit down for twenty minutes or so and read the book of James through, and then go back with us as we work through it we 're doing about a half chapter a week, roughly, so we 're in the second half of chapter two today, uh, where James again makes his case uh, for an active faith. he does it even a little stronger he 's starting to really, really kind of grind in at this point. Um, it's an interesting text. We'll look at it in a moment. He's having sort of a, a rhetorical conversation. And different commentators, it's funny to read whether they, nobody knows. Is, is there actually somebody out there that's making this argument with him? Or is he just making it up? Either way, he's sort of having this, this rhetorical argument back and forth. And then he ends the chapter with two examples from the Old Testament. So, what I want to do this morning, we'll read the text. I'm going to pray. And then I want to take a look at those two examples. Uh, from the Old Testament. But let's pick up in James 2.14 through the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. So Lord, would you uh, allow us this morning to really uh, take your word and assimilate it into our hearts and into our lives, that our faith would be uh, alive and active as we seek to uh, extend your kingdom to those around us uh, all the time, everywhere we go and everything we do. Amen. So Abraham is an interesting guy in the... Just in in history in in general. Father Abraham. Everybody know Father Abraham? Many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. Pretty good, huh? So were you. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. That's the first time I've ever led singing. I never have led singing before. Uh, It's it's also the last time. Father Abraham, he's the father of the faith. Abraham figures into, interestingly enough, historically, uh, the development of three major world religions, Christianity and Judaism, as well as Islam, all look to Abraham as a patriarch and a founder and the beginner of their faith. In the New Testament, Christian New Testament, Abraham is referenced uh, many, many, many times over. He's referenced by Jesus repeatedly, uh, as well as by, by Luke in the book of Acts, by Paul in several of his letters, by Peter. And then, of course, the author of Hebrews, the mysterious author of Hebrews, uh, mentions Abraham in the hall of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Abraham is kind of the, the pinnacle of that hall of faith. So he is this, this person of faith, this figure of faith that we look to. As mentioned uh, uh, in James, uh, Isaiah calls Abraham... Uh, a friend of God. I love that. You know, I just I was thinking about this morning early just driving here it was cool out and thinking about the day and the message and the word today and I just thought, man, what what a deal at the end of your life if if it could just be said you were you were God's friend. Wouldn't that be good enough? That that would be just, you know, hey, Glenn was a friend of God. I think that would be all you really need. Friend of God. Despite all of that history and and everything that we know about Abraham's faith. Uh, he, he was not perfect by, by any means. Abraham was very typical in terms of uh, biblical heroes. He was a flawed person. He made some mistakes along the way. Uh, there were a few different times where fear crept into Abraham's heart. Uh, he, he lied and told stories about his relationship with his wife and different ways to, to get into places and get uh, things he needed. Uh, he also took the promise of God... And this is something I, I think we can maybe learn a little lesson from. He took the promise of God and tried to work it out under his own terms. Anybody ever, you know, have a, a, a promise from God and it's not happening, not happening, so you kind of start manipulating circumstances and trying to get that thing to happen. Uh, that's what Abraham did. He had a promise of future generations and then he, uh, that, that wasn't happening, so he had a child with his servant, rather than believe God and wait on God's timing, uh, he felt like time was getting away from him, so he did that. And, and that decision really resulted in, in one of the more heartbreaking sort of uh, scenes anywhere in Scripture, uh, you, you know, later when Isaac was born and then uh, Abraham has to dismiss Hagar and Ishmael and send them off. And it's, just a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking scene. It's a tragic scene. That never would have had to happen had he been obedient and faithful and just waited on God. God. So I want to look at this uh, story that James mentions about Abraham and Isaac this morning. That is found in Genesis chapter 22, uh, beginning with sometime later. And this is the previous passage was the birth of Isaac. So it skips from him being born to this, which is uh, we don't know how long sometime later is, but it's years later. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am," he replied. "Do not lay a hand on the boy," he said. "Do not do anything to harm him. For I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from me, your son, your only son." Um, so, based just on that, even if we had just that there uh, section of scripture, this is, uh, I think, for most of us, an unthinkable situation to be a person of faith and to desire in your heart to be obedient, to follow God, and then be instructed by God to sacrifice your child. That, that alone, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's a seemingly impossible, at least for me, to, to, to get a hold of mentally, a seemingly impossible test of faith. But if we take into account... The larger narrative of abraham 's life and the rest of the story, we realize first of all that Isaac is not only his son, his only son whom he loves, but he is the child of promise abraham is is barren for uh, ninety plus years, well beyond uh, childbearing he 's been promised by God, uh, a son who would be the father of generations and generations that God would give him descendants as. M- Multiple number, a greater number, as the stars in the sky. It's just look at that real quick in Genesis 17. This is just prior. Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, "I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully, be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you. It will be greatly increase your numbers." Abraham Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, "As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham." For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me uh, and you and your descendants after you in the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. So, okay, so... This child is, is the only way that's going to happen. So not only is he his son whom he loves, but he's the child of promise. He's the one that God said Abraham would give him to be the father of, of many nations. So again, Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah are well beyond childbearing. They're, he's 100 years old. She's 90. Uh, God bless them for even being willing to have a kid at that age. Um they They wait all this time, finally, God gives them a child. I can't imagine the fulfillment of that if you've you've waited and finally it happens and, and you you go, okay, this is it god God was true to his word, he's faithful. He, we have this child. I mean, you would be so overwhelmed so. So filled with joy. So filled with faithful, faithfulness. and I mean, that would just be the most amazing, miraculous thing that ever happened. I would imagine every single day, every time they look at that child, every day when he walks in, he runs out, they're going, oh my God, this! thank you so much. Thank you so much. Every time they see that child, they're reminded of God's goodness, God's faithfulness. God did come through. He, he, he gave us what He promised us He would give us after all this time. And then one day, God speaks to him again. Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son, you, who you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. And the mountain I will show you. I don't know how old Isaac was at this point. Um, it's interesting. A lot of artists. A lot of, I, I love uh, classic. Biblical art. I don't know if you can see that very well. Uh, Rembrandt. This is not, this one's not Rembrandt, but but a lot of different artists show Isaac as being a, really a teenager, a young man. He's he's this is not he's not a little kid. He's 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 older. He's been around for a while. We don't know. It's just sometime later. Uh, what we know is this though: he was old enough to converse intelligently with his father about what was going on. He was old enough to understand the process of worship and sacrifice. He, he knew what was happening. He asked, where's the lamb? We, we've got the stuff. Where's, where's the lamb? So at this point in the game, uh, Isaac was aware of what was happening. He'd been you know alive and, and with his family for any number of years. I just i can 't imagine they you know three days they 're walking to this place, right What was Abraham thinking during those three days? Is he thinking you know is he cherishing every moment thinking this is this is the last trip i 'll take this is the last time i 'll be with my son, or is he hating every moment, knowing what 's going to happen at the end, or is there some mixture of those things of loving this time and cherishing this time with his son, but also knowing what the end result is going to be. He had to be confused. I I wonder, if it were me, uh, would he be a little bit angry at God? Certainly questioning God maybe at this point. uh, Maybe Abraham thought, you know, he took the blame on him. It's something I've done wrong. I I, I know that for... (laughs) We won't ask ask for a show of hands, but probably many of us would think that. What have I done? This is, it's got to be something I did wrong to have brought this on. had to be one of the most difficult, challenging, mentally exhausting, confusing three days ever. As all this is going on in his mind, he's, he's walking to this place and then he has this conversation with his son and in the midst of all of that, promise of God, the promise of generations and generations. His only son who he loves. Abraham obeys God. When, he went, when they reached the place God told him about, he built an altar, he ranged the wood on it, he bound his son, laid him on the altar, reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay him. That, says James, is faith. Rahab uh, Rahab's a little different story. She she is not a patriarchal father. In fact, uh, insofar as ancient Near Eastern history goes, it was a very patriarchal society. She really kind of has one strike against her just because she's a woman. She certainly would have two, maybe three strikes against her uh, based on being a, a woman of ill repute. We're told she was a prostitute. That's who Rahab was. Um, Rahab is known primarily for her descendants. Uh, that's the thing that she's most often remembered for. Rahab was actually a descendant of Abraham, and ultimately, uh, Rahab, let's see, was the mother of Boaz, uh, who, ga- who married Ruth. Uh, in, the, in the book of Ruth, and then gave birth to Obed, and then to Jesse, and then to King David. And of course, if you continue that line on down, uh, it continues on right through Jesus. So she is known most, really, for you know, uh, her lineage and being in the line of Jesus. Um, but it's, it's not that heritage that James honors her for. It really is her actions. It's what she did, and I want to look at her story as well. And it is found in the uh, second chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim. I, well, I don't know why they put that name that city. That that's a horrible name. <laughs> Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, "Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land." So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and enter your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Uh, you know what bugs me? This is, I have a pet peeve. This is what bugs me. Uh, when, when Christians tr- try to rationalize away things that don't fit in their box. So, um, very clearly... The Bible honors Rahab for her actions here. She not only uh, is referenced in James, but she also is in Hebrews 11, uh, along with Abraham and Moses and David and others in the Hall of Faith there. Uh, the difficulty, of course, with her being honored as such, is that she was a prostitute. And, uh, w- w- I mean, to be honest, she was a foreign prostitute, which is the worst kind, um, it's amazing how many commentators will try to sanitize that a little bit because they just can't quite bring themselves to acknowledge that the Bible will honor uh, this prostitute. You know, that, well, maybe, I think the word there could mean uh, she was an innkeeper. She was just an innkeeper. She was running a nice little B&B. Uh, no, I think if you did a little word study, you would find out that that word prostitute, it pretty much means she was a prostitute. That's, that's who she was. She sold herself to traveling businessmen and made a living. Now, I don't, I don't know. We don't know anything about her history. I don't know who Rahab was. I, I don't know how she got into the situation she was in, why she was in the situation she was in. I don't know anything about her. What I know is this, that somehow in the course of her dealings, she heard about the God of Israel. And when she heard about the God of Israel, uh, she made a decision and she believed in her heart, this was the God of gods. This is the God of heaven on earth. This is a true God. She believed. She believed enough that she was willing to risk her own life Uh, What she did was really treason. It was punishable by death. She very easily could have been put to death by the king had he found out that she was giving refuge to these spies and lied to government officials and sent them on a wild goose chase. Um, But she did that because she believed in who God was. And James tells us that's faith. So, what do we... What can we learn? Why did James include these two Old Testament examples of faith? What can we learn from them? I think the first thing is that God is no respecter of persons. You've heard that before. What does that mean? It it means that God, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter how the world classifies you. It doesn't matter what your history is, where you've come from. Um, What matters to God is your heart your faith, and how you live that faith out. That's what matters to God. Second thing I think we learn here, and, and this is James's primary point, faith without deeds is dead. Um, it's clear to me, and I, I realize it's not to everyone, but it is to me that James is, is not saying that our deeds will save us. He's not in any way preaching a salvation by works. He's not saying our actions, our deeds uh, will gain us anything at all. He he is not saying that in any way. What he is saying is that if, if you really do believe, if you really do have faith in God, if you really do believe God is in control, if you really do believe God is good all the time, then you will be willing to stake everything on that. If you really believe that, You will be willing to stake your very life on it. Your life will show that you will, in fact, live by faith. It's not a profession of faith or a prayer of faith. It's it's not an intellectual assent to faith that God is looking for. It's a life of faith. Your life will uh, exhibit faith. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved. Rahab was willing to face a death penalty because they really did have faith. They really did believe that God was who He said He was. True faith will be evident in our decisions, in our actions, and our treatment of others. That's the message of James. It's our heart here in this church. It's our desire to exhibit our faith by sharing the love of God with people around us, by Meeting real needs and taking care of people in such a way that reflects the heart of God. That's what we do, that's what we're about, and that's the message of James, and that's why we're looking at James. Let's go ahead and stand.